Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. This week's family Bible story during Eastertide is Breakfast by the Sea of Galilee. It is the third resurrection appearance of our Lord Jesus. One of the things that characterizes the season of Easter, from Easter Day through to the day of Pentecost, is the emphasis upon the office of the holy ministry. For it is through the office of the holy ministry that the gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation that Jesus earned for us in his death and resurrection are then communicated to us and proclaimed to the world. So the second Sunday of Easter, we have Jesus in the upper room. We think of the office of the keys. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give with you. He said, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And then the third Sunday of Easter, we have the Good Shepherd Sunday. Calling Jesus the Good Shepherd is to call him the Good Pastor who lays down his life for the sheep. I know my sheep and they know me. My sheep hear my voice, they follow me. And these continuous themes throughout Eastertide, for example, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is explained by Jesus. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So this third resurrection appearance of Jesus is not only fitting during the Eastertide because it happens during those 40 days between the resurrection of our Lord and his ascension, it is also a catechism story as it focuses on the office of the ministry or as the catechism puts it, the office of the keys. The Sea of Tiberias mentioned in the reading is named after the Roman Emperor Tiberius, and it is another name for the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a lake formed by the Jordan River and it is 680 feet below sea level. Very interesting. It's 13 miles long, 7 miles wide, and 160 feet deep. Uh, its waters were rich with fish. Peter and Andrew, those brothers, James and John, those brothers, had made their living as fishermen on this lake or on this sea. So the Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee, or Lake Gennesaret, as it's also called, uh, are all referring to the same body of water. When Jesus called Peter and Andrew, James and John into the office of ministry, he called them out of that office to be fishers of men. And that's recorded at the beginning of uh, Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 5. And on that occasion, they had fished all night and caught nothing. So that first miracle of the miraculous catch of fish at the beginning of Jesus' ministry is then framed by this resurrection catch of fish just before Jesus' ascension into heaven. Uh, in the Luke 5, at the beginning, Peter says things like, uh, we've, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. And when he did, the net was so filled with fish that it began to break. 
On that occasion, Peter then confessed his sinfulness. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He was right, he was a sinful man, but the last thing he needed was for the Lord to depart from him. So now at the end of Jesus' ministry, in this miraculous catch of fish, in this third resurrection appearance of Jesus to these seven apostles, they again went fishing. And just like the first time, they again had caught nothing. Jesus again instructed them to cast the net into the sea at the right hand of the boat, and they caught, according to the testimony of John, 153 fish. But this time, the net does not break. So the unbroken net is a sign that they were now ready to begin the work to which he had called them to be fishers of men. They had been with Jesus for three years, and they were now to begin to cast the net of the Lord's word into the sea of this world to catch sinners and bring them into the ship of the church for salvation. So I think that is a, a nice rounded overview of what it is that is going on in this narrative and its significance. It's all about their ministry as apostles. Let me give to you these three, uh, four central thoughts first uh, before reading the text. Number one, Jesus' resurrection from the dead guarantees the promise of resurrection to eternal life for all who believe in him. And it's that promise which we will hear toward the end of this chapter 21 in John's Gospel that will enable or strengthen the apostles to be able to endure persecution and even martyrdom. Number two, Jesus has provided his ministers with all that they need in his word and sacraments. In the first miraculous catch of fish at the beginning of the ministry, that's alluded to by Peter saying, we've toiled and caught nothing, but at your word we will let down the net. This time they simply do it as they are told. Number three, Jesus' ministers are dependent upon God's grace alone in the office of the ministry. And number four, Jesus' ministers are called to love Christ more than anyone else in order to be faithful to Jesus and to the charge that he had given them. So with that overview and those central thoughts, we read the text from John chapter 21, making some comments along the way. After these things, which would be after Jesus' second appearance in the upper room with his disciples, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, one. Thomas, called Didymus, the twin, two. Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, three. The sons of Zebedee, four and five, James and John. And two others of his disciples were together, and they are unnamed, six and seven. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. I pause at this point to indicate that not only was there the scene in the boat at the beginning of the ministry with that catch of fish and now here, but we think of the stilling of the storm 
on the Sea of Galilee. They're in the boat. Or another time, the disciples are in the boat. Jesus is not with them. And then he walks in the water and crosses to them. Or other occasions where Jesus asked to go into the boat and a little while from the land to then preach to those who are on the land from the boat. For all of these reasons, the boat or the ship has long been a picture of the church. And the rough seas, uh, this world of travail, hardship, suffering, loss, judgment, uh, from which we are rescued by being brought in to the protection of the church. That goes back to the Old Testament, to Noah and the flood. Eight souls were saved through water on the ark that Noah was instructed to build. Verse 4, But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. I mean, they're about a hundred yards from the shore, and perhaps that explains why they didn't know immediately that it was Jesus, but there's also this sort of uh, inability to recognize him in these resurrection appearances until his appearance is coupled with his words. Verse 5, Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. It is amazing how in the resurrection appearances of Jesus, uh, both in the upper room on Easter night and now here, food is central. As it remains in the church, uh, we not only hear the Lord's word, but we eat of the sacrament. And in addition to this, Jesus eating with his disciples, they eating with him, uh, indicates also the tangible bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Verse 6, and he said to them, uh, they, they answered him, no, we do not have uh, any fish. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. So here we have the image of superabundance. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, a reference to John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now before concluding the account, 
We pause at this juncture to note a few things. What do all of these details teach us about Christ's love for Christians and the future ministry of his apostles? The numbering of the fish, 153, every soul that is brought into the church is known by our Lord and loved by him. I know my own and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice. And that the net of the Lord's word and sacraments are sufficient for the church and the ministry. The net doesn't break. The net remains intact. They drag the fish to, to shore. Apart from Jesus' command to cast the net and the net that he provided, they would have caught nothing. So we see here the total and complete dependence of the church and the church's ministry upon the Lord's word and sacraments. This invitation, come and eat breakfast. I'm not saying that this is the Lord's Supper. It isn't, it is a sign. But that invitation, come and eat, is the essential character of the call of the gospel to come to the Lord Jesus, to repent of one's sin, to confess one's sin, to be forgiven one's sin, to eat of his body, to drink of his blood, to feast upon his word. And there is no objection along the way here in this narrative as there had been early on. Recognizing that it is the Lord, they follow him in all that he commanded them to do. Now before continuing on, in the next section, 15 through 25, they're still on the banks of the Sea of Tiberias. Jesus is still with them. And Simon Peter is addressed by Jesus. And John, the son of Zebedee, called the disciple whom Jesus loved, is also there. Let me note this about the reference to John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I do not believe in any way that we should see this as a proud or an arrogant kind of statement, as if he loved John more than the rest, or he loved John because John was a better disciple than Peter or the rest. But rather, when John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, he is telling us something about how we all should view our lives as Christians. When we are called to faith in Christ and baptized into Jesus, no matter our struggles and weaknesses and failings, we are the disciples whom Jesus loved. And I sometimes wonder if John uses this term to remind himself that he is loved by his Lord in spite of his sin. I think it is also important to note how often the Apostle John highlights love in his eyewitness account in the gospel, according to St. John, and then also in his first epistle, where, for example, in chapter four, he says, God is love, and love one another as Christ has loved us, or we love God because he first loved us and gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So when John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, all of those things are behind it. Now in this section, 15 through 25, Simon Peter is restored not only to his relationship with the Lord, 
but also to the apostolic ministry. And the command of Jesus to feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, is a word of absolution that reinstates him into the office by God's grace that he had fallen from in his denial of Jesus. And this should be of great comfort to us as individual Christians and particularly for the pastor, that the strength of our office as ministers is in the command of Christ to go, preach the gospel, make fishers of men. So in this section, Simon Peter is restored. After the disciples had eaten breakfast, Jesus talked with Simon Peter, who had previously denied his Lord, and he asked, asked Peter three times, do you love me? Each time, Peter responded, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And each time, Jesus replied with a command to do the work which Jesus had called Peter to do. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. On the one hand, Jesus' persistent questions hurt Peter because they remind him of his sinfulness and how he had denied his Lord three times. On the other hand, by his renewed command to care for Christians as sheep of the Good Shepherd, Jesus forgave Peter and taught him that his ministry as a sinful man, what he confessed at the first miracle of catch of fish, rested entirely upon the Lord's grace and forgiveness that had saved Peter and which was the only strength of his office as an apostle. Jesus' first question, do you love me more than these, teaches us that love for Christ, even more than love for his sheep, is the most important priority for a minister and every disciple of Jesus. So we read, beginning at verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Now there are a couple of interesting things to point out in verse 15. First of all, in the New King James translation, Peter is called Simon, son of Jonah. Now it seems evident when one looks at the older manuscripts of John's Gospel and elsewhere in the New Testament that Simon Peter's father's name was John, again a common name. Jonah is a derivative of John, but it's not the same thing. In Matthew chapter 16, Simon Peter, when he makes the good confession, is called by Jesus, son of Jonah. What does this mean? Jesus often uh, adjusted names to make a point. For example, Simon Peter's actual given name was Simon, but Jesus gave him the name Peter, which means rock. And from that time forward, he was called Simon Peter, or simply Peter, which means rock, or Cephas, which means rock or stone. To use the name Jonah 
at the time that Peter made his great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then to go on on that occasion to tell Peter of the necessity of his death and resurrection is indeed what is embodied in the sign of Jonah in the Old Testament. As Jonah was thrown into the raging sea and swallowed by the fish and then vomited out on three, three days later, so also the Son of Man must die and rise again. So Simon, son of Jonah, uh, when that is used, is a reference to how the sign of Jonah is at the heart of Peter's confession. Now here, very likely, Jesus used Simon, son of John, but uh, scribes who wrote this down, remembering the use of the name Jonah from Matthew 16, uh, likely interpolated it here in the text that is a part of the manuscripts from which the King James and the New King James were translated. So that is kind of an interesting point. Uh, certainly, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection is at the heart of Peter's confession and also at the heart of his ministry. Another interesting thing is in verse 15, the word love here is the word for brotherly love or affection. But in the next verse, the word agape is used that that kind of love which is the love of God. And then in verse uh, 17, he, refers, he returns to the use of this brotherly love concept. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now this change in the use of love, when Jesus the second time uses the word agape, Peter replies with, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, that other word, philo, or phileis, which means this affection, this brotherly kind of affection and love. So Peter never answers the question <clears throat> using the word for love, agape, that Jesus used the second time. And then the third time Jesus asks the question, he returns to that brotherly love use of the word love. I think it's an interesting nuance in the text that, yes, Peter loves Jesus, but he loves Jesus not in a perfect love. Who among us can? But he does have great affection for Jesus. The love born out of genuine repentance and faith. And Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? The love for Christ above all other people is the single most important thing for the minister to have in order to remain faithful to the Lord's charge to, in this case, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. The text continues. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked 
where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you, and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he, Jesus, said to him, follow me. What a lovely expression, follow me. Jesus went to the cross to die, and he went on to resurrection and to glory. So when Jesus says to Peter, follow me, Peter would go on to suffering, die a martyr's death, be raised from the dead, and go on to glory. He would follow in the train of his Lord. Then Peter turned around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, I think this is quite lovely because on the one hand, Peter had grown a lot. Uh, he was reliant upon the Lord's word. Uh, they let down the net. They dragged the fish to land. He receives Jesus' word here. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And yet Peter's personality still shines through. What about this man? What will happen to him? It was predicted that Peter would be arrested and he would be martyred. He would go where he did not wish and he would be crucified, as it turned out, upside down under the Emperor Nero. But what about John? And Jesus' reply is profound. If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Again, it is profound because we're not to be concerned about what happens to others where their field of service is in the church, but to live by faith alone in the Lord's word and what the Lord has called us and given us to do. You follow me. If I will that he remain till I come again, that is no concern to you. Now verse 23. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? According to church history, John apparently did not die a martyr's death, but he certainly did die. And we, together with Peter and John, await the resurrection. And John, who had concluded chapter 20 of his gospel with many things Jesus did which are not written, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, now concludes chapter 21, the very last chapter, by saying, This is the disciple who testified of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which, 
If they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. This is the Gospel of the Lord from the Evangelist and Apostle St. John. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus, as you forgave and strengthened Peter to be your apostle and provided everything that the church needed for the ministry, so teach us to rely upon your word and sacraments for all that we need to preserve us in life and in death. In your name we pray. Amen. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.